is king in MotoGP and almost every decision is driven by fact rather than feeling. But to get the right information, you have to ask the right questions. Welcome to Mission Winnow presents Powering Innovation, the podcast that looks at the technology behind the racing in MotoGP. And on today's show, we're going to look at the technology that gives the teams as much information as possible. My name is Steve English, and as ever on Powering Innovation, I'm joined by Alberto Nasca. And Nasca, we've got a lot of ground to cover in this week's show. Yeah, hello, Steve. Hello, everyone. Talking about data is our topic because we're both software engineers. So, yeah, we know how important data is. We know how big it is, how a big deal it is to to have the right data. And this is what, what we're going to talk about in this episode. And just to to let people understand what it means when we're talking about data. Every motorbike is equipped with data logging, which is um, a hardware and a software that collects all the data from all the sensors all around the bike. This happens now in almost every uh, vehicle, not just for racing, but especially on the road, for the safety systems, for the engine, for everything. The thing is that in motorsport, the data logging is important because you need to analyze data to understand what's going on, what's happening, and improve the performance of the vehicle, not just about the engine or the electronics, but also about the setup. And the importance of that has been understood many years ago, because for example, 30 years ago, the first one to use the data logger on the motorbike was Kenny Roberts on the Yamaha. And, but at the time, they were, using, they were using it just in free practice. Why? Because of the weight. Because now we have the smartphones, which is super small, but at the, at the age, 30 years ago, the data loggers were huge. And it was a big problem because being it that heavy, it changed the, the way the bike behaved. So by using the data logger in the free practice, it meant that you maybe made a setup for that condition. And then in race, when you removed the weight of the data logger, the rider encounters some problems in suspension, in resonance and in other things because that data logger was acting as a damper. Okay. So this allowed us to understand how it started 30 years ago and how it evolved. Now, a single MotoGP is able to generate 9 gigabytes of data per race. So you can imagine the difference. Yeah, and it was one of those things that whenever the Roberts team initially used it, it was looking at simple data. It was looking at things like just the speed or the revs, the gears, the throttle opening. It wasn't looking at the amount of channels that we have now. But at that point... They only needed to have that basic information because it was a big advantage to them compared to all their other rivals. But uh, like you said, Nasco, when Rainey would come into the pits during free practice sessions, he'd say one thing about the bike. And then it took them a long time to actually really understand why there was a difference then once they went into race trim. And uh, as you said, it was basically just down to the fact that the data logger was taking out some of that resonance. And it just goes to show that even if you've got the data, you need to be able to understand it. And at the time, the team didn't understand it initially. And then eventually, obviously, they were able to see what was causing the issue and then use it to their advantage. Exactly. And we also we also have to think about that the MotoGP is the highest technologic level of motorbike racing. So every gram that you put on the bike can change the way the bike behaves. So having a data logger that I, I don't know how much it weights, but it weighted, but maybe one kilo. Okay, even one kilo can make a big difference on the motorbike. And nowadays, the, the systems are much more sophisticated, much more, more evolved. And how does the data logging work? We have 
the data logger, which collects the data from all the sensors, and the sensors are spread all around the bike. For example, we have the sensor for the wheel speed, which is something that we have in every um, straight motorbike, which is the one that reads the speed at which the wheel is spinning. And what's important about that, it's not just the speed of the wheel itself, but the difference between the wheels. For example, when you are wheeling, you see that the bike is wheeling, not only for the inertial platform that we'll see in a few minutes, but also for the wheel speed, because if the bike is wheeling, the real wheel is touching the ground, so it's increasing the speed, while the front wheel is not touching the ground, so it's decreasing the speed. So, for example, by looking at the data, you can see the wheelie just by looking at the wheel speed. Yeah, and there's tons of different things you can find out from the data as well. You can see just how much you're sliding as well because you're able to see that when you see those big dark lines being let down, it's that rear wheel is spinning up a lot faster than the front wheel. You're able to use that to understand how you're going to use the traction control. And I think one of the biggest things to, to look at when you think about the data is what's being measured. Because, like I said at the start of the, at the, start of the show, you can only get the right information if you ask the right questions. And with the data, the right questions come from having the right sensors. So on a bike, you're going to have things like you said, Nasca, the wheel speed sensors, just to tell you front and rear speeds. You're going to have suspension stroke, se uh, suspension stroke sensors that are going to tell you all the information about your suspension travel. You'll have things that will be in the engine. You'll have lots of sensors in the engine to look at oil temperatures and pressures within the engine. You've obviously got your throttle and brake positions as well. You've got lots of different sensors that you're able to use to combine to give you lots of good information. So a MotoGP bike could have 100 sensors on it, but it could generate three, two or 3,000 channels worth of data for the teams from those sensors. And it really is a case of the more information you have, the more likely you are to be able to solve a problem. Exactly, because, you know, the rider feeling is always important, but it's not... 100% accurate because it's a feeling. So every rider has a different feeling. With the data, you can see exactly what happened, 100% sure. For example, with the suspensions, if, if the rider is feeling the front, which is not properly damping the bumps, then the telemetrist can say, okay, what's going on? Why is it not damping the bumps? Because it's too stiff, it's too soft, the suspension is not traveling enough. And you can see that from the suspensions. For example, one time I crashed and I felt, I, I don't know why I crashed. That's what I said in, in the pit lane. I don't know why I crashed. I just entered the corner. I felt the front vibrating and then I crashed. Then what we saw from the suspension is that I hit the bump and the suspension was not properly calibrated to absorb the hit of the bump. That way, with the telemetry, we were able to fix the problem, which otherwise would have been impossible. And one other thing, one other very important thing is that the rider may lie, but the, the data logger does not lie. For example, if the rider say, yeah, I'm doing that corner flat, I'm 100% throttle, the engineer can see from the telemetry if he was truly 100% or he lifted. So it's nice to see, yeah, I did it flat, I was at full power, 100%, and then, no, guy, you lifted. <laughs> it doesn't lie. It, it, the data never lies, but how you interpret it does change. And I think that's one of the big differences that we see between certain schools of engineering as well, because obviously you know, the data tells you the story, but you need to be able to then work with the rider to be able to get the most from it. And for a lot of riders, they want an engineer that's going to trust their feedback. 
for a lot of engineers, they want the rider to be able to trust the data. And it really is a marriage between the two. You need to be able to trust the rider and trust the data and use the two to work together. And I think that's where you see a lot of crew chiefs that are either ex-riders or they've come up through the ranks. They really are able to drive things based on the feeling and use the data to try and improve that. Whereas we see a lot of newer engineers that have come straight from college to work in MotoGP or in other championships, and they're very much data-driven. And they will try and make sure that the rider puts the bike into the right window. They try and change a rider's style to try and get the most out of it from the data. And for a rider, this can be very frustrating. So there's always that thing of between the two, you need to find a balance. And obviously, we look at it on this show about the importance of the data, but on a motorbike, the only thing that really matters is the rider. And it's being able to get as much through to the rider as possible to be able to try and get them to improve as much as possible to be able to set their fast times. And that's where data can be really useful. Yeah, exactly. This is the main, I would say, problem, but it's not a problem. It's a challenge, I would say, that we have in MotoGP racing is that everything relies in the end on the rider, okay? Because it's the rider that controls the bike. So you cannot base everything on data. Data are important, but the rider itself is important as well because for example if we're talking about a spaceship that is going to the space okay we're talking about data everything is controlled by a computer so data is the most important thing but the MotoGP is controlled by a human so you need to be able to interact with that human and to calibrate the feeling and the works that we're going to do on the bike on the uh, rider for example I remember one day when I was talking to Andrew Pitt I interviewed him he was the crew chief and I asked him, what exactly is a crew chief? And he told me, yeah, I'm the one that stay between the rider and the engineers, okay? But then I said, yeah, but what do you do, actually? And the answer he, he gave me was amazing. He told me, yeah, uh, actually, I'm a psychologist. Because the, the role of the crew chief is to be able to interpret the feeling of the rider and filter it. Because, you know, sometimes the feeling of the rider and the data don't match or they are in conflict. So the crew chief needs to be able to, you know, to put things together. And that's why all the time, most of the time, they are former riders. Yeah, and that's where someone like Petty, a former world champion, really has been able to bring forward his riders over the last few years. He's obviously worked with Michael Vandermark recently. He's working with Andrea Locatelli from next season onwards. And... For Andrew, he's got the experience of being a rider, but I think he's also a, a trained accountant. So he's got that basis of looking through numbers to be able to try and find the answers. So he's got that, just that uh, that training to be able to find the right balance between things as well. And that's definitely something that's been a big advantage to him whenever he's moved into crew chiefing as well, because suddenly you're able to look at it from both sides. And I think for Andrew, he's, like you said, Nasca, he's a psychologist for the rider. He wants to try and get the most out of the rider, and then he'll sit down with his crew to be able to try and make changes and try and make things better. And that's where it comes down to really being able to work with your rider, because some riders need to be in the garage the whole time. They need to be talking to the crew chief. They need to be talking to the engineers, whereas other riders just want to see if something's better or worse. And that's where the data really can help because if the feedback is, isn't is quite there from the rider, then you really can go into a data-driven thing to be able to try and find improvements. Yeah, definitely. And 
exactly like in the previous episode where we talked about the, the TV broadcast and the, um, and the evolution of the, of the technology, the same things happen for data analysis because all the things that are possible now for the engineers and for the crew chiefs and for the team are thanks to the evolution in technology. For example, it's incredible to think that one smartphone, okay, one nowadays smartphone is a hundred thousand times faster and more powerful than the first rocket that went off the moon. So something that you can buy for 500 euros is a hundred thousand times than something that maybe costed one billion euros back in the days. This truly allow us to understand why all this evolution was possible. And the evolution in the computing power, in the computational power on the MotoGP allowed the teams and the manufacturer to, to have a huge transition because what happened in the beginning? In the beginning, the data logging and the, the electronics in general were something passive. For example, let's talk about the traction control. So the idea behind the traction control, what it is, it is that if the real wheel is spinning, so you're losing traction, there are two things to do. Either the rider closes the throttle or the electronic cut the power, okay? So the traction control was created to prevent the rider from crashing, okay? To, to stop the real wheel from spinning before even the rider were able to stop it. But in the beginning, it was something passive because you have the two wheels, you measure the speed of the wheels, and if you see that the real wheel is spinning too fast, then you realize, okay, I'm losing grip, I cut the power. What's the problem? Is that you're trying to resolve a problem after it happened. It's something you're trying to, to stop a bomb from exploding after it's exploded. It's going to be a mess anyway. You just have to, to control the damage. Then what happened? It happened that the electronics went from a passive strategy to a predictive strategy, which is way smarter. So instead of saying, I am losing grip, let's cut the power. Now they say, you're probably going to lose grip. So I will cut the power before you lose the grip. And how is it possible? It's possible thanks to the computational power and thanks to other sensors, like, for example, the inertial platform. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things, Nasca, that it sounds awful like the Terminator and Skynet coming in to destroy the world. But uh, <laughs> with, with the active systems, it did actually destroy the racing in a lot of times because suddenly the systems evolved during the course of a race and the riders really struggled to be able to get side by side to try and attack. And it was only whenever we really changed to having the controlled ECU that we were able to get back to being able to really focus on the rider again and racing. And uh, we saw a big improvement in terms of what we saw on track because the systems had been taken down a level. And like you said, you went from being a passive system to an active system that was self-learning to then back to what we have now with a passive system. But we still have it where corner by corner electronics are possible because we still have it where the teams will go out on the Thursday of each week and they'll measure the track. They'll take that the wheel that will give them the meterage and they'll go around the track and they'll be able to say, okay, at turn one, it's at this meter. Turn two is at this meter. And on their data, they're able to then 
build up corner by corner electronics and really evolve that over the course of a race weekend. That's where Portimao was actually really interesting because when you talk to the crew chiefs about going to a new track like Portimao where MotoGP had never been, they said that when they went for the test initially, the key thing for them was to be able just to try and build the electronic package from the ground up. So you started off with the gearing on the bike and then you worked straight away into the electronics. And that really does show just how much of the performance of the bikes is driven by this. And then from that, how much of the performance of the bikes is just driven just by the data analysis that the teams can do. Yeah, absolutely. And the electronics is something that it's a double-edged sword because for something is useful, for some other has been hated by the riders. Because, for example, let, the, a predictive strategy for the traction control, how does it work? It works combining the data of speed and suspensions and the lean angle. So what's the idea? The idea is that if you are at 50 degrees leaning in second gear and you request 100% throttle, okay, if the traction control is passive and cut the power once you lose the, the rear wheel, you're already flying in the air, okay? While the predictive strategy says, okay, you're not gonna ask 100% throttle in second gear at 50 degrees of leaning, okay? So it's something that made riding safer, especially on the road, especially from for amateurs, because those systems that, that then have been implemented in the stock bikes that everyone buys to go on track made riding safer for the amateur. But for the pro riders, which are used to do incredible things, it's something that might be annoying. For example, if a rider says, I am in total control of the bike, I don't want the electronics to control the bike for me, you can understand the struggle. If the electronics is not properly set up, it might be counterproductive. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the key areas where we see that constant battle between the riders and the electronics engineers because they know that the electronics are crucial to be able to develop the speed that they need to be able to qualify at the front and race at the front. But they also don't want to sacrifice the feeling that they can have. And that's where it really does come down to a battle between feel versus speed. And it's where we see a lot of things where a rider will almost have to give up some of their, their feedback from the throttle, their throttle feel, just to be able to try and improve their tyre life over the course of the race. They know it's going to cost them a little bit in terms of how they feel on the bike, but they know at the end of the race, it's going to find them a lot of time. And that's where you've always got that bit of a balance. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned the throttle, and the throttle had an incredible evolution because we went from the first bike where it was 100% mechanic, where when you turn the throttle... You have a, a metal wire that it's connected right to the engine, okay? So it's something 100% um, physical, okay? Nowadays, we have the ride-by-wire, which means that inside the throttle, you don't have a wire. You have a sensor with a spring that recreates the feeling of the wire. So it's just for, for the rider feeling. And then... We have a system that electronically decided where to, whether to open or close the gas. That's why, for example, in the data logging, I'm talking about my bike. I don't know exactly in MotoGP. I think it's going, it, it might be the same. You have two data for the throttle. You have the throttle request, which is how much throttle the rider is requesting. And you have the actual throttle, which is the actual 
throttle that the bike is providing. And it's, it's nice to see it because you, you can see the electronics working on that. And that happens not just for, you know, the, the traction control and the power control, but especially, for example, for the anti-wheeling. Because, you know, wheelie is the, the enemy number one for the bikes. Every time the bike is wheeling, you have to cut the power. Otherwise, you can flip. And being able to control the wheeling without cutting the power too hard is something important. Because at the beginning, the anti-wheeling, how did it work? It worked in a simple way, which is if the bike is wheeling, I cut the power. Okay. But again, it's like trying to prevent the damage from a bomb exploding. What happens? If the bike starts to wheelie and you cut the power, the bike slams back down, then it bounces back. And you have this bike bouncing, becoming a horse, a mad horse, okay? Now, what we see, we see that when the MotoGP bike are exiting the corner at full throttle, we see the front wheel just floating all the time. There are no wheeling. They're just floating. And it's amazing to see the riders exiting the corner with the steering locked on one side and the wheel just gently floating on the ground. Yeah, and I think that's one of the key areas where we've seen a lot actually over the course of previous episodes as well, where the key thing for being able to get that good acceleration performance is just in that 120 to 200 kilometer an hour range. And that's where being able to use the aerodynamic wings or the whole shot device and the electronics really makes a big difference. And that's where we see a big improvement. And that's where technology such as the inertia platform really has evolved tremendously to bring this to the fore. And it's really changed how engineers are able to, to work with the bike. Exactly. The inertia platform is one of the most important things that has been introduced because it's something that, thanks to gyroscopes and sensors based on six axes, is able to provide in every single moment the exact position of the bike in space. So how much it's leaning, how much it's wheeling, how much it's stopping. That's what allowed the big evolution in electronics, the inertial platform. Yeah, and it basically took electronics from, you could look at it as a 2D curve versus a 3D curve. And it just really evolved tremendously. And it changed an awful lot about how the rider was able to feel on the bike. It gave them a bit of their feeling back but it also made big improvements in terms of how teams were able to control tyre life again. That's always the crucial thing for a race duration. If it's a 40-minute race, you want to have as much tyre left at the end of those 40 minutes. And that's where suddenly over the course of the last few years, we've really seen teams focus on being able to control and conserve their tyres. And that's where Ducati did a lot of work with tyre simulations as well to be able to try and find improvements in that area. Yeah, that, that's one important thing because sometimes we think about the electronics uh, like something that makes the ride easier for the rider or makes the ride faster for the rider. For some things, it might be true for the amateurs, okay, for the normal users. But for a MotoGP bike, what's actually doing important, the electronic, is that it can allow the rider to save tires, for example. A properly set up electronics it doesn't just allow the ride to to be easier for the rider, which is it's which is important, but it's not the important thing because we're talking about aliens, okay, MotoGP. So they can they can ride anything in any conditions. But what what the rider cannot do is to be fast with a worn out tire. So if the tire is gone, there's nothing the rider can do. Okay, if the electronic is off, 
there is something that the rider can do because he can control the bike, but it's the tire is gone. There's nothing he can do. So a proper electronic is capable of providing long-lasting tires. It's a big deal. Yeah, now, like I said, that's where Ducati were the first that really focused in on it. And they were able to use simulating tools that are very similar to what the car industry has used for decades. But obviously for a motorbike, it's a very different set of circumstances because you don't have that same dynamic on the bike. You're changing your weight, you're changing your load all the time. So Ducati were the first to use this and it gave them an immediate advantage. But there's other areas as well where we've seen teams make big steps forward in recent years and probably one of the biggest ones for an engineer, for a crew chief, for mechanics, for everyone working as a team has probably been the chassis programs as well where teams are able to basically develop their chassis settings based on individual changes. Yeah, that's very important. If we talk about the dynamic simulation tool, I'm proud of it because it's made by an Italian company, which is Megaride, which is in Naples, uh, or Napoli, as we call it in Italy. And about the chassis programs, that's important because the bike is a, it's a very complex system. It's For some things, I think it's more complex than the car. That's why, for example... Some technologies that we've seen of the, on the cars arrived like 10 or 20 years later on the bike. And it's a complex system because, for example, I remember one day I changed the tank cover on my bike. And I am an amateur. I want to remind this. So you can imagine how, how bigger the impact would have been in a MotoGP. Okay, so I am an amateur. I just changed the, the tank cover which made me sit like two centimeters more towards the front when braking or leaning. And we had to change the setup for that because the bike behavior changed. So the problem is that you don't have too much time for testing in MotoGP because of the costs, because of the regulations. So you cannot, every time you do a small change, put the bike, put the rider on the bike and say, okay, try it and see how it goes. You need to be able to simulate. And that's why these softwares are super important because they allow not to, to get the final result, but to get an idea of what one small change in one part of the bike uh, can generate on the rest of the bike. Yeah, and that's probably one of the big areas where Suzuki were ahead of the curve and they've been able to use those simulating tools this year. And obviously that's played a big role in being able to see Juan Mir win the world championship. And it shows just how constant that innovation and evolution really is on all areas for teams and for manufacturers out there. And Nasco, this is the penultimate show for us on this series. Next week's going to be our last show and we're going to move on to a different area next week to look at again where that innovation really has come from. Yeah, ne the last episode, which is which will be one of the most innovative for me, because it will talk about something that we're still not used to see in real life. It's something that we know it exists, but actually I have never used one, okay? So it's going to talk about the 3D printing. And for, for me, for example, or for normal people, we're used to think about the 3D printing as something people use for fun at home to print stuff and say, oh, look, I, I printed this, this tiny plastic dog, okay? <laughs> and then they show it to you. But actually, nowadays, 3D printing is, is being used in MotoGP. It's being used for prototyping in order to build something quickly and see how it works, but also for racing itself. We will, we will see some more bikes 
some manufacturers that are using over 100 parts 3D printed just for racing. But yeah, this is something that we are going to talk in, in the next episode. Yeah, big reason for everyone to tune in next week for the final episode of this season of Powering Innovation. So from today's show, a big thank you for myself, Steve English, and a big thank you from Alberto Nasca for listening to this week's show. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, everybody. And see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.